glorious work that we see. And it is a reminder. It is a picture of the rescue that God did when he saved us from his wrath. Think about that for a moment, brother. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been saved from the wrath of God because the Lord Jesus took that wrath for you. He was in your place. In fact, we see this again taught throughout Scripture. Look with me, if you would, for just a moment as we lay the groundwork for our text, which Brother Graham over here, he's shocked because I told him what I was going to preach on, and the Lord gave me a different kind of a, a different direction to go. It's kind of a unique day, and so I wanted us to kind of be centered on that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Look what Peter, under the inspiration of God, wrote concerning baptism, as we are going to uh, witness, as I said, in just, Lord willing, in just a little while. Look at 1 Peter there, if you would, a, a, a glorious portion of inspired scripture. Look at there at verse number 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse number 18. Look what the Bible says. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Now, brethren, this whole text is all centered around the substitutionary death of Christ. Many people think that this text concerning that we're going to get into tells us that baptism saves us. It does not. It is the text that's around. It is the substitutionary death, first of all, for Christ, the just for the unjust. Christ was just. You and I were unjust. We were sinners, lost Amen. and on our way to hell. And Christ took your place this morning if you're saved. So it's all centered on his substitutionary death for you. Look at what else he says there. That he might bring us to God. Again, that's the just for the unjust. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, now if this was Wednesday evening or Sunday morning, Bible said, ask you, how, many, how long did God wait? How many years? Well, the Bible tells us about 120 years, God's long-suffering waited. Well, Noah was building the ark, amen? And uh, we see here then, look at here as we continue in our text, his long-suffering. Paul spoke of God's long-suffering as a, a glorious attribute of his in which salvation comes to those who will believe. It's an amazing thing. But we see it even here in the Old Testament. People say God changed. He has not. God is loving. God is long-suffering. God is gracious. God is kind-hearted. God is all these things in the Old Testament, just as he is today, brother. He has not changed. Amen. Not at all. It's amazing. God was an evil tyrant in the Old Testament, but now he loves us. No, he's always loved you. If you're a child of his, he's always loved you. He's always cared for you. He has not changed. One bit. Look what it says. Long-suffering God waited in the days of Noah, 120 years, while the ark was prepared, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Careful now. Verse number 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of God of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Christ. So we see again the foundation that I ask you this morning. If this, if this particular text is teaching us that when these four young ladies get in the baptistry this morning and they get in the water and that water saves you, you do realize that the water was the judgment of God. You realize that everybody that was in the water died. It was the judgment of God. No, the text is saying that because of his substitutionary death and his resurrection... Those are the saving graces within our text. It isn't the water. It, brother, the water's going to do nothing this morning to these girls who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's simply going to illustrate and figure, as the scripture says, it is a figure, it's a type of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And by the way, I have to say this. 
I'm on prednisone today, so that's why I feel good. I told Wendy, I said, I haven't felt this good in 25 years. I mean, wow. Energy, amazing, isn't it? The just for the unjust in verse 18, brother. That is what this text is based upon. And the Lord's resurrection. They are the ark of salvation. They are which saved. And so, with that being said, as we delve into the waters of baptism this morning, let us turn back to our text. Matthew chapter 28. And let us just walk down through verse by verse. Let us let God's holy word speak. Amen. Let us allow God's word to exegete out the text. Amen. We're not going to isogete anything into it. We're going to allow God's word, as we as a good Bible teacher should always do, allow it to exegete it out. To tell us what is it saying. Amen. Not what does Mike think. What does Pastor Mike think. What is his thought. What is the Bible actually saying and telling us. And so, this morning, this is the in the context that we must look at our text. Look there, if you would, with me this morning at verses 16 and 17 of Matthew chapter 28. Look what the Bible says. Then the eleven disciples, that's a very important portion of scripture as he begins here, the eleven disciples. You will remember by this time that one of them is gone. Which one was it, right? Judas has committed suicide. So it's the eleven that are gathered here together. He says, the disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What a glorious reunion that Matthew records for us here in the inspiration of God. As the Lord Jesus stands before his disciples, think about this, brethren, for just a moment. As he stands before them in his glorified and resurrected body. This really is quite an amazing thing when you think about what the Lord is doing here. It's a crazy and amazing thing. And as Jesus had appointed, he had ordained them... The 11, again, one's committed suicide, so the disciples are all here. So, brother, this text is not talking about doubting Thomas. Some have said, well, some doubted. Well, doubting Thomas was one of the 11 that was here, amen? No, actually, this is more related to more than likely the 500, amen, that were gathered together that saw the Lord resurrected, amen? Some believed and some doubted. Well, it wasn't doubting Thomas for sure. It was maybe some amongst that crowd as they were seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected and glorified body. But we know that these 11 are gathered here. They're gathered on this unnamed mountain, and their immediate response was to worship. Their immediate response was to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What an amazing thing. He is the first fruits from the dead. He, of course, is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the forever the God of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the Son. Now, that word worship means to adore. It means to pay divine homage, divine honor. It's to treat with supreme reverence, to bend the knee in extreme submission. Now, brother, only a regenerated man, woman, or child will do that. No unregenerated man will ever bend the knee to Christ. It will not happen. And so we see here again, these 11 who are gathered here on this unnamed mountain are bending the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore telling us that the regeneration has taken place, that they are indeed true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can go to John chapter 20, you'll see that, that they were gathered there and they believed in who he was. But it's interesting that they worship Christ here after his resurrection. They will worship Christ again, and we all will, according to Philippians, amen, we will all Bend the knee to Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? We will all profess that He is Lord, that He is God and Christ of all. 
We will do that because either God has regenerated us and we do it of the will that he's changed in us to bend the knee or you will bend the knee at his command. This is what will take place. Rebellious men will bend the knee at his command. It's an amazing thing, brother, when you think. But I want you to see this. They also worship here in Matthew chapter 2 when he was born. It's amazing the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ as God. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. We're not going to wander too far from the Gospel of Matthew today because there's so much beautiful and glorious uh, um, dictation to us from the Word of God here. Look at Matthew, if you will, chapter 2. And I want you to notice, again, this is one that many people will associate with, of course, the, the, uh, the Christmas season. But this is a glorious text for all of mankind, for every day, all year long. Amen. Understanding the worshipfulness. Now, the word worship, of course, means worthfulness. So, therefore, Christ is worthful. He's worthy to worship at his birth. And, well, he's a couple years old here by now. But you look here, look at their reaction. Look at Matthew chapter 2, look at verse number 9. And when they heard the king, they departed. Lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And yes, I believe the star moved and it directed those. Yeah, exactly as scripture says. Amen. God's word is truth. Yep. All of it is truth. Amen. Do I understand it? I don't understand it all, all the time. But I do know one thing. I will bend my knee to it. Yep. And so should you. You should bend your knee to the word of God. The star followed its stock, directing the bend. Well, that, that's a whole other sermon. But look what it says there which they saw in the east and went before them, till it came and stood where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And then when we were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. And we notice that they don't worship Mary. Mary gets bypassed. Yeah. Who do they bend the knee to? Yeah. Well, to the Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to he who came to die for the sins of, 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 of men. Yeah. And when I say men, that's ladies, you too. You're saved too that way. Look what it says. And fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts. Well, why would they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh? Well, again, this, of course, is symbolic. This, of course, is prophecy being fulfilled. The gold is a symbol of his deity. The, the uh, frankincense is a symbol of his purity and holiness. And myrrh, of course, was used at the burial. When one was buried in those days, they would prepare you in the Jewish way, wrap you up, put some nice myrrh on top of you, and stick you in the tomb. Amen? So he, they're coming and saying, they're worshiping him. You are the one. You are the one who's come in the flesh, God himself, the Son of God, who came, who's going to sacrifice himself. He's going to die and go to a tomb. That's what they're certainly indicating to us by just the things that they brought. He's holy. He's always holy. He will always be holy. He's continuing to be holy. He's perfect. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, some of the aberrant doctrine that's out there about the Lord Jesus Christ, mm. it is horrible, demonic teaching. Stunning. Stunning thing. It really is. From eternity past to eternity present and on into eternity future, brother, the sheepfold of God will indeed worship. Those who hear his name, when, when, those, when he calls their name, he's the great shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheepfold of God. And when one is born again, truly born again, we will worship now. He was worshipped in the past, and he will be worshipped in eternity. Amen? He is God himself. And we see here again 
in the sonship, the great shepherd of our souls. You will worship just like they did if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will bend the knee. That's what will happen. Look back there now. They, they came and they worshipped him, the eleven, and also what I believe there was a greater crowd there, but that's for another day, another discussion. Look there, if you would, at verse number 18. And uh, I want you to notice here in our text the word all. All. We see it four times in our text. And uh, all here means all. You do realize in contextually, as you look in Scripture, sometimes all doesn't mean all. Here it means all, contextually. Look there, if you would. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All what? Power. All power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. So in other words, what that means is that what he says in heaven, what is done on earth, what he, what he controls in heaven, he controls on earth. He is sovereign God. Yep. Nothing takes place in heaven or on earth apart from his glorious sifted through his hand. He's all power, all authority, literally what that means. And so you see there again, here in verse 18, Matthew, is led by the Holy Ghost, begins this series of alls. And I want you to see, which capture, listen, brethren, the apple of our Lord's eye concerning his great commission. These are the things by which the church will go. These are the things that are the center, the apple of his eye, if you will, which literally means the center of your eye, you know, the pupil, that thing which is in the center. It's the very center of his commissioning that we're in the middle of. I want you to see this. Verse 18, all power, which means all. Look at verse 19. Not only is he all power, but he wants us, verse 19, go ye therefore and teach what? All nations. So all power, all the nations need to be taught this glorious gospel. Look at verse number 20. Teaching them to observe all things. Oh, isn't that wonderful? It's glorious. All power, all authority, all nations, all things. And then look at the glorious promises we close in our text a little later here. Look at what he closes with there in verse number 20. Teaching them to live all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you what? Always. Always. What a glorious promise. And we're going to look at that here. Because, brethren, we're sinners. We sin this morning, unless you're different than me. I don't know. But yet God in his glorious promise to us says he will keep us as we sang in this morning. We'll go forth by grace alone. We will service Christ and be in his service by grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. And this, brethren, can be no doubt. He lays the foundation here, as I said, for which his church is to go. He has all power. He has all authority. In fact, they even noticed when God was here in his hypostatic union, perfect God-man, together, united. Even the people that looked at him and looked around at him said this of him. And I want you to look with me, if you would, for just a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son in the flesh. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Again, just a couple of portions of Scripture to us here as we examine His authority, His power. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 28 and 29. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. There's that naughty word that nobody likes anymore. Doctrine. We shouldn't talk about doctrine. Yes, we should. Yeah, we should, because Christ did it, the apostles all did it. Doctrine is central to everything you believe. You realize this. And it does exactly what God designed it to do. It divides, doesn't it? 
We talk about that all the time. Good doctrine divides. It divides dark from light, truth from untruth. That's exactly what it does. And not only does it divide, but then it brings those who believe the truth together. And so it's a, it's a glorious two-sided thing that doctrine does. Well, here, they're astonished at his doctrine, what he's teaching. And then look at verse number 29. For he taught them as one having what? Authority. He's got authority. This is the idea here. Not as the scribes. In fact, Matthew chapter 9, look there, just over one text again. They have seen the God-man. He's walking here, and they recognize in him something much more than just a mere man. He has authority and power. Look at Matthew chapter 9, look at verse number 4. Again, as we're looking at our marching orders from the Lord Jesus Christ, who has all power. Matthew chapter 9, look at verse number 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that, ye, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on the earth to forgive sins. He's God. He told the man, Arise, and, and, the, and the Bible says here, Arise, take up that bed, and go unto thine house. I like what Spurgeon said concerning power being rested in the hands of Jesus Christ. I like this idea of the power, brother, being resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Him alone. His power. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Power in the hands of some people is dangerous. <laughs> power in the hands of any people is dangerous, I would say. Amen. We're seeing it today when men run amok and they think they have all the power. It's a dangerous thing. But power in the hands of Christ is blessed. Oh, let him have all the power. Let him do what he will with it. For he cannot will anything but that which is right and just and true and good. Let Christ have the power. He has the power and the authority because he's perfect in what he does with it. You and I don't. What Matthew is saying is Christ's lordship in our text comes to fruition with his authority extending not over the earth but over the heavens as well. There is no place, there is no time, there is no space where he is not incomplete and does not have complete authority. Amen? So it's upon this ground then that he then sends the church. He sends those who have, been, who have bent their knees to him, who have trusted in him. Then he tells them, with my authority, and I tell you to go, this is what you should do when you go. So let's look there together again. Look back at Matthew chapter 28, verse number 19 again. Again, we notice verse number 19. Let me get back here. My pages are stuck together. Go to verse 19. He says there in verse 19, what's that first word? Go ye therefore. He says, go ye therefore. This is one of the three imperative commands that are in our text. One of the three, you know what an imperative command is? An imperative command is one that cannot be disobeyed. It's not one whether you and I say, well, I might want to follow that command. No, an imperative command means that it's one that must be followed. So the first imperative command that we see by our Lord, who is all authority, he tells us to go therefore. It literally means as you go. So brethren, as we go, as we are sitting here together this morning, and now as we depart ways in just a little bit, as we go out, we are to traverse this world. We are commanded to carry the gospel of Christ with us, heralding it to everyone we meet along the way. This is what he's saying. Go ye therefore, 
We come together, we are the ecclesia, as I said earlier, the called out of God to be gathered together to be what? Edified by the preaching of the word, to edify one another as we are gathered together, to encourage one another that when we leave, we may go and we may take the gospel with us and we may be heralding to everyone that we come across. In fact, those who have been here a while, you know that I preached through the book of Jonah not too long ago, but I want to look there again, because again, it is a glorious example again of a different dispensation of time, a different, if you will, uh, different dispensation of time in the Bible, and yet, what does God tell us even in that dispensation of time? Look there at Jonah, if you would. Jonah chapter 3. Now, we remember that Jonah, in chapter 1, was told to go. We pick it up here in chapter 3 as he ran, and now he's a God, again, is getting his attention and saying, no, uh, I know you ran the wrong way, but here you are. I'm going to send you where I want you to go. Look at verse number 1, Jonah chapter 3 again. As we see these three imperative commands that God gives unto Jonah. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, that's number 1. Arise, Jonah, get up. What's the next one? Go, we are to go, amen. And then what? Go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So in other words, brethren, we know this. There's three imperative commands. You to rise, to go, and then you're to preach that which I give unto you. Now listen, brethren. Again, as I have taught before, you realize that Jonah was faithful in what he did. He got up, he went, and he preached that which God gave unto him. Jonah didn't preach his own thoughts. He didn't preach his own ideas. He didn't preach what he thought he should preach. He preached what God bid him to preach. And you know what happened? Again, as I've said, you realize this is an eight-word sermon. He preached an eight-word sermon. And brothers, the whole city repented. It's an amazing thing. From the king on down. He simply was obedient to God. Go preach, and I will bring the results. Amen? This is exactly what happened. Again, this command to go. In fact, he tells Jonah there, look at that eight-word sermon in verse number four. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's eight words. And we see one of the greatest repentances that ever takes place in the Scripture. It's an amazing thing. He was obedient to God. Look at what he tells his disciple. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Again, this idea of going. And the reason I'm kind of centering on this a little bit is because what happens is he tells us to go. And then when Jesus leaves, he tells them he's going to go and he's going to do something. Amen? To his faithful disciples. And so look here, if you would, again, at Matthew chapter 10. Look at what the Bible says as he is instructing them to go. Matthew chapter 10. Again, this is an action verb. Look at verse number one. The Bible says, We have called unto him his twelve disciples. He gave them power against unclean spirits and to uh, cast out, cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Drop down there, if you would, to verse number five. Verse number five, look at what it says. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, What? Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into the city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So in other words, there it is again. Go. He's telling them to go. What are they supposed to go and say? And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely given. Brethren, if you're saved this morning, the gospel was freely given to you. Because someone went. All of us have testimonies. All of us, I'm sure, this morning have testimonies. When someone came and brought the gospel to us, amen? 
They are Bible-believing Christians who have the Bible as their authority, the Lord Jesus Christ as their authority. They come to you and they bring the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus said. We don't come here, brethren, to be entertained. I hope that's not why you think we're here. We are not here to be entertained. And I'm not very entertaining anyway. You know what I mean? We have come together to be prepared, to be gathered together, to be trained up in the things that Christ has had us to be trained up in, that we might go. This is the idea. This is exactly what he's saying. In fact, look at one more with me. I don't want to belabor this, but I want you to see this in every dispensation of time. In Jonah, and now in the Gospels, before the cross, look at after the cross, look at Romans chapter 10. Again, we are told to go. And I want you to see the correlation between scent and feet. You know, God made, gave us feet that we walk on, amen? And so listen to what he says here in Romans chapter 10. Look at verse number 13. Look what the Bible says. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe that. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're trusted in Christ, you're saved. If you're going to trust in Christ, then you will be saved. If you call upon his name, well, look at verse 14. How then shall they call him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be what? Sitting in the congregation, sitting in the church pew, and no, unless they go. They go, that's the idea, unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are what? The feet of them who bring great tidings and good news. The idea here is that one is walking, one is going, and the idea is that as you go, we're heralding that great and glorious gospel to those to whom you come in contact with. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? How God has certainly dictated to us how men are saved. And yet sometimes we struggle and fight. We don't want to do that. No, 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 no. no. This is an imperative command. <laughs> you don't get to sit and wonder if you should do it. This is something, as we traverse through this world, we are indeed, brethren, to carry the gospel of Christ with us, heralding to everyone we meet along the way. Now look back there at Matthew chapter 28. Look at verse number 19 again. Matthew 28. Where to go? What are we supposed to do after we've gone? Well, there's an interesting couple of words that he uses here for us. Matthew 28. Look at verse number 19. He tells us there, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. We're to teach all nations. So the second imperative of God is to go. Secondly, we're to teach all nations. Again, an action verb. We are to have all nations. That word literally means, brother, to uh, become a pupil, a disciple. We are to enroll them as a scholar of Christ. It's an amazing thing, brother. A believer trusts in Christ and he is saved. And then he grows in the Lord. And then we are to then in turn make other what? Pupils, other disciples, those who would become a scholar about the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole world should be a scholar concerning Christ. Amen. People think that's the pastor. Well, the pastor went to Bible college, and maybe he didn't go to Bible college, but he went to Bible college, and he, he's the one that's supposed to know everything. Actually, brother, you are too. It's not just the pastor to sit here and disseminate. We should do that. That's part of what we do. That's a gift that we have. But, brother, and there's this thing called soul competency. You are responsible for reading, teaching, understanding, and gleaning the Word of God. Amen? We're not like Catholic here, okay? You don't need to hear the Pope, the pastor up here, disseminating what it is. But if you have the Spirit of God in you, you can look at the Word of God and you can say, okay, the Spirit, yeah, that's what that means. Although there's always questions, isn't there? There always is. I have questions. 
It's an amazing thing. But we see here again the idea that they are to teach all nations. Again, this action verb. Again, it makes them a learner, a follower, a disciple of Christ, which, as we all know, brethren, is the most often used word in Scripture to designate one who follows Christ. In fact, 262 times the word disciple is used in the Bible. In fact, Jesus emphasizes this again, the teaching the gospel, and then he uses that. Look at verse number 20. He uses the word teach in verse 19. Verse 20, he uses teaching. Look at that. Teaching them to observe all things I command you. That's the growth. That is the idea where one becomes a scholar of Christ. Now, <clears throat> I know, you know, you have, well, if I could calculate it out, you have, a, what, general math. Then you go into something a little higher. Then you go into something a little higher, algebra. Then you go into something that I could never reach to, calculus. You know, and it just keeps going. But the idea here is to grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You start out in general teaching and understanding when you believe. And then there's this idea here of a continuing, ongoing, sitting under the lecture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You become a scholar. That's what he says. We're teaching and we're teach. This is the idea here. Again, to have an understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. Look at verse, well, we already looked at verse 20. Discipleship is indeed... The work that we do. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is something God does. Becoming a disciple after we have the Spirit of God is something that the Spirit of God does in us. And we do for one another. It's an ongoing training. Now, we have become scholars of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does God then tell us to do concerning this? Look here, if you would, at the third imperative command. After we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he says there if you would, in verse 19. You're thinking, is he ever going to get done? Yep, I will. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. What's the next action word? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So the third imperative in our text this morning is to baptize the disciple in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Again, an action word. In believers' baptism, the Christians publicly identifying themselves with who? With the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you realize that when Jesus was teaching his disciples to do this publicly, it's like anything else in Scripture. you got to put on, okay, what was going on in their time? What was going on in their, in their world at that time? When one identified themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, many times, you know what they were doing? They were basically giving up their own life. Because if one identified with Christ... Many times, the Jews would come and take care of you. Saul was one of them, amen, as we've gone through the book of Acts. When you identified with Christ in those days, you were literally putting your own life on the line. And he said publicly, we are to baptize those who have trusted in Christ inwardly, to baptize them outwardly, that the world will know that they're identifying with me. And back then, that was a dangerous thing to do. It's kind of like people would, you know, they'll take... Uh, that portion of scripture where Jesus, you know, he says, when I was in prison, you came and visited me and you, you brought me this and you did this. Well, that means we should have a prison ministry. I'm not against prison ministry. I had one for three years, but that's not what that meant. Yep. When you went to prison, someone was in prison for Christ and you taught them food or you brought them water, you did anything like that. You were identifying with them. Yep. And you know what happened to you? Yep. You were identified as one of them. Yep. And they came and hunted you down. This is a public identification. What 
these four young ladies are going to do is, they've already internally trusted in Christ. They've believed in his substitutionary death. Amen? They've trusted in that. That's been applied to their hearts. Amen? They have believed that Christ died and rose again for them. That's the inward thing that the Spirit applies. This is the outward thing where we identify with that. When one goes through baptism this morning, like we're going to see, Christ's death becomes your death. Yes, his burial becomes your burial. His resurrection, then what? Becomes your resurrection. You are identifying with that. You are saying publicly to the whole world, I believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that what? He arose again from the dead. Identifying with him. Saying exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. That he died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he what? He rose again according to the scriptures. So these young ladies, although saved, are now publicly coming to identify with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Amen? What a glorious thing that is. What an amazing thing we're going to behold um, this morning. And finally, brethren, as we, as we kind of bring this to a close, because we don't want to turn this into a Puritan service, which we could, <laughs> you know, several hours long, look there as we close out, because this is really a glorious thing. A glorious promise of Christ. Look there, if you would, at verse number 20 again as we bring this to a close. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Listen, brethren. And lo, oh, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. What an amazing promise he makes. Those who have trusted in Christ, those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I will be with you always even unto the very end of the age. He gives us one of the most comforting statements in all of Scripture. Jesus as Lord of all promises to be with us always, even to the final consummation of all things, brother. It's a stunning thing. His continuing abiding presence is a profound promise of prophecy and his own promise, brother. Matthew closes the gospel as he opened it. Isn't it amazing, brother, how he closes with, I will be with you always, even unto the very end of the age, you remember in Matthew chapter 1, again, another portion of Scripture that's somehow tied only with Christmas, but it's the glorious, uh, the, uh, glorious arriving of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what, they, remember what the Scripture says in Matthew chapter 1? His name is what? His name is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. It is God himself in very flesh, present, tabernacling amongst people. And he says here, as he closes his gospel, just like he opened it, God is with you always. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing, glorious promise that we, that we see there. And I want you quickly as we close to turn with me to one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. In fact, my family asked me, unbeknownst to me, what my favorite passage was just a few weeks ago, and I ended up with a very nice gift. Well, it's a knife. Liberals won't like it, but it's, it's a nice, got a nice knife with this text on it. It's an amazing. Turn with me to John 13, verse number 1, as we close. Look at this glorious promise. And in the context, as Jesus says this, and we're going to just flesh that out for a moment, so we can understand really the depth, the depth of Christ keeping us, the depth of Christ never leaving us when we are saved, when we are a child of his. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 13. Look what it says, John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto what? 
unto the end. Now, brothers, sometimes we read this text and we don't understand what he's saying to them here. It's a stunning and amazing thing because if you, if you follow the text through, he says, I will love you to the end. Now, of course, we know what's the first thing he tells them here in our text in John chapter. He first tells them, I will love you to the end. Then look what he tells them there in verse 21. Look what he says. I'm going to love you to the end. But here's what's going to happen. Look at it, verse number 21 there. He speaks to them of Judas's betrayal. Look at verse 21. He says, I'm going to love you to the end. But look at verse 21. He says, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in the spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, one that one shall betray me. So here he says, I'm going to love you to the end. But of course, Judas, who was destined to be what? He was destined to die. He committed suicide. And again, you have to keep in mind, he's speaking to the 11 here who, are, who our text is speaking to. Those to whom he saved and carried all the way through to the end. He loved them to the end. That includes not Judas, <laughs> brother. That includes the 11 that are there at that present time in our text. Look at what he says in verse 33. Not only is he telling them, I'm going to love you to the end, but look, I'm leaving. Look at verse number 33. Look what it says there. The Bible says, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. So here they've been with Christ for three and a half years. He's telling them, one of you is going to betray me. And not only that, I'm going to leave. Uh, you can't come where I'm going. So brethren, think of the sadness. One of the inner circle is going to betray him. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who we've been with, who's been ministering and making us disciples for three and a half years, is going to leave. And finally, one of the greatest really glorious things in this text. Look at verse 36. Not only that, he tells Peter himself, here's what you're going to do. And Peter, even though you do this, I'm going to love you to the end. Look what he says there in verse 36. He says, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered, said, uh, answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. What a glorious affirmation of Peter. Verse 37, Peter said unto him, Lord, why, uh, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall uh, crow, shall not crow, till thou hast denied me three times. Think of this, brother. I'm going to love you to the end. In other words, even though you're a sinner, I'm going to love you to the end. I died for you. My sacrifice is for you. And even though that's happened, amen, we are sinners. We walk through this world, unless you're different than me, and you might be. But I know one thing. I know my own self. I know my own heart. And all of that, as I grow older, as I become a Christian longer, I begin to understand what really being saved by grace alone really means. It is by grace alone. You cannot keep yourself. It is he who keeps you. And we see this, don't we, as he continues on. And again, let us just close. So he, he's going to love him to the end. Judas is going to betray him. He's going to leave. Peter, you're going to deny me. But look what he says in chapter 14. Look how he opens up chapter 14. So he tells them all of this. And then we get to the glorious chapter number 14. This is where he goes. And this is what's such a glorious thing. Again, his promises to us. His promises to those to whom he will love to the end. You go and then look at chapter 14. Look at verse number 1. Let not your heart be troubled. He just told them all these things. How can my heart not be troubled when I know that this is going to happen and that's going to happen and that's going to happen? But he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. If you're a believer this morning, let not your heart be troubled, brother. Whatever comes, you're aware of my way. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Look at verse 2. 
In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, he would never lie to us. Amen. What Jesus said is true. It's always true. He will never lie. Look at the next two words. I go. You see that? He went when he was here preaching. Now he says, when I leave, I'm going to go. And what am I going to go to? Where am I going? What's the promise? Look what he says there. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Amen. And receive you unto myself. There where I am, ye may be also. What an amazing thing. You know, this morning, he knew that Mike Fix was going to be saved by his grace in 1987. Drawn out of the world, a, re a rebel above rebels, brother, an evil, wicked man. He said, he came to me. He rescued me. He saved my wretched soul. He drew me out of the world unto himself. He saved me. But you know what's happened since 1987? He imputed his righteousness to me in that very time. And you know what's happened since 1987? I've sinned since 1987. Yes, I have. But you know the glorious news, brother? The glorious news is this. Is that when you trust in him, when you believe in him, all of your sins are forgiven. Amen. Past, present, and future. Brother, we could never have security. We could never have security without understanding His grace. Knowing that it's Him who will love us to be. Irregardless. He looks past your sin. When you're a child of His, it's taken away. That doesn't give us license to sin. Amen. In fact, your soul hurts when it does, but you sin. It's all Grace alone. Hey, Mike, I knew that when I saved you in 1987, that you were going to do this, this, and this, and this. And I'm still doing this, this, and this, and this. Still, brethren, listen. We don't even and cannot even comprehend, as I close, I know it is new. You and I cannot comprehend. We understand sometimes the sins of our transgressions. Brothers, we know when the Spirit of God, you know when you do something and it's wrong. The Spirit of God convicts you, right? You know what you have no idea about, and neither do I? The sins of omission. Think of this, brother, for a moment. The sins of transgression, I can kind of get a hold of. I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have thought that, or I shouldn't have done that. You have no idea what you should have done or didn't do. None. The sins of omission are covered covered in Christ. And man, that grace of His keeping you to the end becomes more and more glorious even in that. It is about Him. It is about His gospel. It's about what He has done. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Father, this morning we are so grateful, so thankful for Your grace, Your unmerited favor. Father, we pray this morning for those who have already trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for them that they will be encouraged through the preaching of your word. We pray that as we are now going to gather around the Lord's table and then be witnesses to baptisms, believers' baptism this morning, 
that they will be encouraged and edified in that. Father, we pray this morning for those who are lost sitting here this morning, asleep in darkness, like we sang, totally asleep in darkness, dead in their sin. You know, dead people feel nothing. They feel nothing. It is until the Spirit comes and awakens them out of their deep, deep slumber of death. That the pains of their sin haunt them. And they come as the great shepherd calls their name. They come, they hear his voice, and they come and follow him. They become followers, they become disciples, they become scholars of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are so thankful for that. We pray for them, that as I once was, they are now. They can be, as you call them to the cross, saved, sealed, forgiven forever. In the safety of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his substitutionary death of his finished work. Father, we pray for them. And now, Lord, again, as we get to see and witness a father who has trained up his children in the admonition of the Lord, as he has in his home trained his, his girls and his family, as he has taught them in the ways of Christ, Father, we get to see the fruit of that. It is, of course, your fruit first, but there's labor by mom and dad who have been faithful in the Lord, teaching them, and now they get to see physically the fruits of that work. And we thank you for that this morning. We all, too, join with them and rejoice with them in what a glorious day this really is, that they would participate in the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, identifying themselves with him publicly. We thank you now and pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.